zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, you ruined my sneeze now. And I'm Richard Wells. <laughs> hey, I'm Jesse Bayless. <laughs> and today we're discussing Nobody's Perfect, released August 14th, 1981. It was written by Tony Kenrick, based on his own novel, Two for the Price of One, directed by Peter Boners, and released by Columbia Pictures. Peter Boners? That sounds familiar. Yeah, we've had him in a couple movies so far. In 1974, Tony Kenrick's novel, Two for the Price of One, was published and told a very similar story to this film, though set in New York rather than Miami. Six years later, in 1980, Raster Films bought the rights and hired Kenrick to adapt the story to a screenplay under a new title, The Odds Get Even. Somehow on a budget of just $5.5 million, it still landed on Rolling Stone's Big Bucks, Big Losers list for the year. I think The Odds Get Even is a much better title. I think so too, actually. Yeah. The title obviously reminds me of the joke from the Australian Simpsons episode when Marge tries to convince Lisa that a didgeridoo is too extravagant a souvenir and she should settle for a hat that says Pobody's Nerfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's clever, just like you. <laughs> we open on a houseboat in a harbor. A sign hanging out front says Carol and Dibley. And Dibley, played by Gabe Kaplan, steps out the front door and walks to his car. The title is typed out on screen, but it quickly becomes clear that the words will not fit in frame, so the frame is shifted to the left so we can see the sprocket holes on the film reel as the word perfect runs past the edge of picture, spelled wrong, with a K where the C should be. I would have liked it if it just didn't show it. It just, just left it off the nobody's side. nobody's purr and just, that was it. I would not have liked that because <laughs> I would have assumed that the aspect ratio was screwed up somehow. I needed this. After failing for a moment to unlock his car, Dibley realizes he's trying to unlock the wrong car and walks around it to a completely different vehicle. We cut to Alex Karras as Charlie Swoboda, shouting to ask his off-screen mother how she would like her breakfast prepared. Despite no audible response, he seems to conclude her preferences and works on the meal. Next, we see Robert Klein as possibly Walter... He's tidying up a bedroom littered with women's clothing. Dibley is driving down a road when he comes to a red light, but when the light changes, he doesn't budge, and the bus behind him starts honking. A Miami PD bike cop tries to intervene, and Dibley explains he's forgotten how to drive. You forgot. Well, you see, I have this lousy memory. It's going to come back to me any second. The cop offers him some pointers about the gas and brake pedals, and Dibley peels off down the road. Charlie stands in front of his house as Dibley pulls up, but he has to take a couple steps back to avoid being hit when the car drives up onto the sidewalk. Charlie turns to open the gate for his mother to join him in the car, but of course, nobody comes through the gate. His mother is imaginary. Playing along, Dibley asks Mrs. Swoboda how she's doing, and Charlie isn't so lost in the hallucination that he thinks Dibley can hear her response. Everything okay today, Mrs. S? Well, she's fine. Charlie offers to drive since Dibley is clearly a danger behind the wheel, and he proves Charlie right by accidentally starting the car in reverse before driving away properly. Isn't this one of your favorite jokes? No. <laughs> my favorite joke... You said you'll always laugh at this. No. My favorite joke is when the person thinks the car is in reverse and looks behind them and drives forward. <laughs> That's the automatic laugh from me. <laughs> Okay, this is this is a variation on this. Uh, it is, but yeah. it's it's an unsuccessful variation. They come to Walter's building, but he's not waiting for them. I don't mind if he's late as long as he's himself. Uh-oh, here he comes. He's Rocky. No, he's himself. He's just wearing Rocky's clothes. We'll learn that Walter has two alternate personalities that occasionally take over his body, Rocky and Kitty. He claims Rocky dressed him today, and he wants to change, but they tell him he looks fine. As they start their commute together, we hear David McHugh's original theme for the film. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. They roll into the Knollwood Clinic for their appointments with psychiatrist Dr. Siegel. Siegel seems to be training a new psychiatrist, Dr. Carson. 
played by James Cromwell, who only exists as an avatar for us to learn the maladies affecting each of our lead characters. Yeah, I hated this whole, like, it's like 10 minutes of the movie that yeah. have been cut. It's like, I feel like I already understood what all of their problems were. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you could go in there and have them talk to just one therapist that knows them. Right. And, and, and actually just reveal everything you need to reveal without it being a literal i'm going to describe it to you yeah but we also like i definitely got a hint that this new doctor might be a major antagonist of the story and then he never comes back yeah. after yeah. this one scene so it just felt like we spent a lot of time introducing this doctor who's gonna be abrasive with them and then we never come back yeah or, or, or a part of it or helping them right like some some uh, a character in the movie yeah um you know it's like the did you guys ever see the dream team yeah i love that movie yeah and i think that the, that movie has the doctor explains the problems and is a much more successful yeah like comedy i I definitely feel like both of these stories were trying to be the comedy version of one flew over the cuckoo's nest in a way right siegel checks in with his secretary and learns that dibley swoboda and barry have all arrived for their appointments he calls in dibley first dibley and dr carson exchange introductions and then dibley says his memory is getting better before trying to introduce himself to dr carson a second time nice to meet you again Siegel asks Dibley to repeat some phrases he was asked to memorize, including Hamlet's to be or not to be speech, which he fails, and then an original romantic poem that Dibley can't even finish with common sense. See below the stars above, what a night to be or not to be. When he returns to his friends in the waiting room, Dibley has somehow forgotten his shoes in Siegel's office. Next, Swoboda is called in, and Siegel mentions to Carson how obsessed the guy is with his mother conveniently leaving out that she is probably dead or something he's by far the darkest yeah like he's like you just you just don't know what happened we'll, we'll get into that, that they run a business together right and i was like did they always run a business together yeah. or did they start the business after yeah i hope someone got a straight answer as far as where she went out of this guy at some point <laughs> under the floorboards right <laughs> Carson thinks Mrs. Swoboda should be here for the appointment and grows frustrated with Siegel's secretary when she tries to explain that that isn't possible. I don't think I can do that, Doctor. Well, then I'll just come get it myself. He doesn't find anyone in the waiting room, but when he returns to Siegel's office, Siegel and Charlie seem to have just found Mrs. Swoboda a seat. We cut to just after Charlie's appointment, and he says that his mom didn't like Dr. Carson so much. Before Walter's appointment, Dr. Siegel gives Dr. Carson a heads up about Walter's personalities. When he hears Rocky is a Jimmy Cagney-type gangster, he assumes that the other personality is a soft-spoken intellectual type. Adolf Manjou, perhaps. Betty Davis. It's a woman? Her name is Kitty. Dr. Siegel claims Walter was born in the front row of a movie theater during a double bill. IMDb Trivia claims without any clear source that the double bill was Jimmy Cagney's The Public Enemy and Betty Davis's The Petrified Forest. Maybe that comes from the novel? I don't know. I don't think they mentioned it in the film. Public Enemy is great, though. Yeah. Walter explains that whoever gets up first picks the clothes and no two of his personalities can get along, though I can't imagine they encounter each other very often. When Carson learns Kitty is a smoker, he lights a cigarette to try and lure her out, but instead he gets an exaggerated Cagney impression when Rocky shows up and jams a whole pack of cigarettes in Carson's mouth to express his irritation. Take it easy, Doc. Rocky leaves the room and Kitty comes back in. I trust he left me one cigarette. She tells Carson that he has a kind face on her way out, and he's flattered for a second before remembering that Kitty is merely a personality of Walter's. Uh, I have to say... I don't dig his James Cagney, but I love his Betty Davis. I do too, actually. <laughs> yeah, the, the Cagney is, is grating because yeah. he's exaggerating it so much. On their way home, Dibley mentions the doctor had a recommendation. You know, that Dr. Siegel's a nice guy, but he wants me to take one of those winning phone courses. Memory course. Yeah, memory course. You know, I might not have total recall, but I don't think I need a, what do you call it? memory course they drop walter off at his job working for a travel agency customers keep coming in who have spoken with walter's alters on the phone (laughs) even after they explain that they will only deal with rocky or kitty walter freely admits that he is a different person and they abruptly leave why tell them yeah oh and but also i can't imagine rocky as being a helpful travel guide right well they just claim they are maybe they're not We cut to Charlie getting into his workplace, Mimi Swoboda and son counseling. We don't get into it with the film, but presumably his mother existed at some point, and his problem either comes from not being able to accept her death 
or being raised by a father and fabricating her from scratch. Somehow he manages to keep an office open, splitting clients with a figment of his imagination. The McNulty's arrive for an appointment with Mrs. Swoboda, and he ushers them into her office and closes the door behind himself. They stare impatiently at Mimi's empty desk. The Freemans arrive, and Charlie deals with them himself. The husband is a remorseless and abusive alcoholic gambler. I'd like to hear your side of it, Mr. Freeman. That is my side of it. Oh. He tells them he doesn't see any hope for their marriage, and they are relieved. This is what divorce is for, so it's refreshing to see a movie point out that shaky marriages should not always be reconciled. As the McNulty's wait for Mrs. Swoboda to arrive, they realize they don't belong here, and they love each other, and all four clients leave the offices of Mimi Swoboda and son satisfied with their experience. Now, my question about the McNulty's is, are they going to pay? Because technically they didn't see anybody, or was this revelation worth enough for them to pay for their counseling? I think they paid up front. Ah. Because we don't see money come from the other people either. I think this is all... Something that just gets charged to your insurance based on the visit. I do like that this movie, aside from that original doctor, yeah. and, and I guess the wife just kind of being annoyed a little bit at the end because their antics are getting too extreme. Like, even for the most part, she's not bothered by it. Nobody in this movie is really bothered by anything that's wrong with these guys. That's true, yeah. yeah. Like, it, it kind of just always works out okay that they're this way and yeah. I, and i like that everything that happens is sort of to their advantage yeah it actually feels a little bit more realistic because people with these conditions do exist and for the most part they survive and their their lives don't go completely haywire every but, and day this, but this even goes a step further and makes a, a lot of the things that they do like a good thing right yeah. yeah dibley gets to his job at jay byron's department store his wife carol seems to work here too he meets her in a back room for a quick kiss before tying on an apron and heading to his station demonstrating Macbeth's spot remover. He manages to gather a crowd quickly, and a volunteer from the audience offers up a jacket for Dibley to intentionally rub various stains into. Carol watches concerned from afar as eggs, Bloody Mary, chocolate, and lipstick are smeared into the jacket. We're getting these looks from her like, this isn't a part of the demonstration, and why is he doing that I'm concerned? But why would he have scrambled eggs and a Bloody yeah. Mary and chocolate on the counter if this wasn't a part of the plan? I, I kind of took it more like, well, not all of them at once. Like, you put right. ketchup on and yeah. you clean it Maybe. up. Maybe, yeah. yeah. But you don't have to go to a dry cleaner, right, sir? Right. What are you going to use instead? Macbeth spot remover. What? Macbeth spot remover. What am I supposed to do with this? Get the stain out of my jacket. Eventually, another woman in the crowd uses the product to completely remove the stain. Dibley is impressed and asks where he can buy the product. I was going to say, I liked the name of the spot remover. Macbeth, But yeah. it feels yeah. like it shouldn't work then, right? Yeah. It shouldn't function. <laughs> it <Yeah>. does. <laughs> or everything comes out but the, the blood. blood yeah. <laughs> there you go. The next day, Dibley's driving everybody home from another appointment, and they hit a detour around a car accident that sends them through a quote-unquote bad neighborhood. They pull over to ask some men for directions and are promptly mugged. Charlie keeps talking about his mother, and the muggers think he means Walter, who is currently in kitty mode. But when one of the men flips open a switchblade in Dibley's face, Walter switches to Rocky and yanks the knife away, and then cracks the blade off in their car door before threatening them all with further violence. The muggers scatter. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone break the blade off a knife? The Bushido blade? No, it was much more recently <laughs> than that. I don't it, think that happened in that movie anyways. <laughs> it broke the blade off in a dead woman's hand. Oh, frenzy? That's right. Uh. As they drive away from the scene, Dibley crashes the car hard over a massive pothole and the car literally breaks in two between the front seat and the back seat. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a car split in half this way? I do. <laughs> what do you got? Escape from L.A., Oh, so close. Escape from New York. Escape oh, from New York. New York. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> when they drive over the mine on the bridge. They take their broken car to a mechanic somehow, and he offers them $25 for parts because they've totaled it. No, we didn't total it. City totaled it. Yeah, the city. They're a pothole. Well, go find City Hall. The score to this film sounds a lot like the chicken dance in places, and I kept <laughs> singing that whenever it would start up. <laughs> Thank you. 
At City Hall, they learn that the city will not reimburse them unless they can prove that they've notified the city about this pothole in advance in the past and that nothing was done. Based on this logic, you can only be paid if you notice a pothole, report it, and then intentionally damage your car driving over it. Yes. Dibley gets home late on account of having to walk. He opens a beer and then a second later opens another one, something I do with Diet Coke on a nightly basis. <laughs> Amusingly, he flicks the switch on a nearby stereo and the score stops. <laughs> I like that, that the music was actually playing from this radio. He tells Carol what he's been through today. Was anybody hurt? Mm. Swoboda says his mother's got whiplash. I like that he hands her the beer when he does this, right. so he's like covering up his tracks yeah. at opening too. I did this on purpose. They sit together on the couch and kiss a bit until she stands to show off her new nightie and lead him to the bedroom. From outside the houseboat, we can hear her instructing him through each thrust of their sex. Afterwards, they watch a movie about the Japanese capture of Wake Island, probably John Farrow's 1942 film, Wake Island, which was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture. Just what we need, a naval bombardment. You're right. That's just what we need. The next day, Dibley, Charlie, and Walter meet at a restaurant. Walter causes some traffic by showing up in a dress. Dibley arranges this meeting to announce his plan to declare war on the city to get their money back. Dibley happens to be wearing a blue and green striped polo with a white collar, and he looks like Steve from Blue's Clues. Later, they share their plans of naval bombardment against the mayor with Carol, and she is a tough sell. She only agrees on the condition that if she thinks it's getting too dangerous, she can demand they end it. Their plan is Harry's war-level bonkers. Step one is impersonating army personnel to steal a cannon from the Dade County Armory. At the costume shop, Dibley checks out his uniform in a mirror and assumes he's been drafted into the army. Oh my god, I've been drafted. Oh no, not now. Believe me, it always happens at the worst time. Walter, in uniform, flags down a cab outside the costume shop, and the driver assumes Walter is a con man, headed to a massage parlor or a bar looking to steal some valor. So where will it be, Sachs? A dog track, a bar, a massage parlor? Uh, Dade County Armory, please. Yeah, that's good, too. At the armory, he asks a man for directions to the higher-ups, and when he gets them, he pins one of his medals to the man's chest as a reward. Like, <laughs> yeah. good job. He introduces himself to the corporal inside as General MacArthur and is waved right into Colonel Chasen's office. The corporal is wearing a cast. Do you guys recall the last time a character was wearing a cast for no reason? Um, I recall enjoying that detail, but I don't remember what it was. Was it in the ninth configuration? No. Was it um, one of the exotic dancers? Oh, yeah. There was a stripper with it a cast. It was the... Uh, m That's the right sound. <laughs> I want, for some reason, I'm thinking Melanie and Me. That's not what it no. was called. What was it called? Melvin and Howard? Melvin and Howard. Melanie and Me. This is Melanie not my brain. Mac and Me. <laughs> Mac and Me, the Melvin movie. and Howard. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the strippers that works with, what's her name? Mary Steenburgen. Mary, Mary Steenburgen yeah. in there has a, a cast. But more recently than that, I think. Oh. More recent than that. I don't know if this one's as memorable, but I'm pretty sure that Richard Hurd was wearing a cast as General Foley and Private Benjamin when she's working in Europe. Oh. She gives like a presentation and he's got a cast for some reason. Anyway, for some reason I remembered that. Corporal Sparks collects Chasen from a supply closet where he's playing with toys. Do you guys recall the last time a corporal had to collect an officer to meet with a general and found him playing with toys? I'm going to say stripes. That's right. Or space balls. <laughs> we did not cover that one. When the colonel enters his office, Walter is in kitty mode. Hello, soldier. Didn't we meet at the stage door canteen? The Stage Door Canteen was an establishment where Broadway stars were enlisted to entertain servicemen. It was the East Coast equivalent of California's Hollywood Canteen, which utilized film stars. We mentioned the Hollywood Canteen in our Mirror Cracked review, since Elizabeth Taylor's backstory was based on the real life of Jean Tierney, who contracted German measles during an appearance at the Hollywood Canteen while pregnant with a daughter that was later born developmentally disabled on account of the infection. We cut right from Colonel Chasen's office back to the costume shop and everyone's acting like the plan already failed when only one of them has even utilized the costumes they bought and we didn't even get to see how that scene played out. Yeah. Dibley sees a tank roll by on a trailer and flags down a cab to follow it. It leads them to a dock where dozens of cannons are being loaded onto a large ship. 
When the crew loading the ship break for lunch, Dibley compliments crane operator Randall Kendall, played by director Peter Boners, on a job well done. He bribes him with a hot dog into a private conversation. Dibley claims to belong to a super-secret, acronymless intelligence agency, and that these weapons are due for delivery to the Soviet Union. The boxes behind them here indicate that this company is called Pergola Armament Center in Fort Myers, Florida. I only noticed that because I recognized Pergola as the last name of the DP from the opening credits, James Pergola. Randall Kendall agrees to help Dibley by providing one of the cannons from this shipment as evidence against whoever is committing treason by delivering the weapons to the Soviet Union. Dibley calls the guys back, and they plan to take a jeep for a test drive to tow the cannon. On the used car lot, they notice the keys are already in the vehicle, and they take it in a loop around the parking lot, but when they see cops, they repark it. A salesman mistakes them for a trade-in and offers them 1500 cash for the jeep. Unfortunately, I have one just like it uh, somewhere on the lot, but you look like such fine folks. Watch this. Immediately, a second salesman thinks they're here to buy the jeep, and sets the price at 1600 How about 1400 15 Okay. It seems crazy that two salesmen on this lot would ever consider the same price for a buyback and sale. Yeah. <laughs> Are they selling all of their cars at cost? Instead of just being happy to have a car again, they move forward with their plan to steal a cannon and threaten the mayor's life. That night, it occurs to Dibley that there are a lot of men working that dock, and they'd need them all to look away for a while to successfully steal a cannon from the bunch. Well, the only thing I know that would distract them is a naked girl. Oh, no. N-O. Absolutely, categorically, no. The next day, they rent a boat to float Carol out beside the ship to flash everybody while the crane operator sneaks a cannon away. Right now, Carol is wearing a silver cloak to hide her nudity, and Dibley offers her a curly blonde wig to conceal her identity. Charlie and Walter park the jeep outside the shipping yard, and the crane operator prepares to make the handoff. Once Randall Kendall has the cannon in the air, Dibley hits the power button on a speaker system, blasting burlesque music from the boat, and quickly capturing everyone's attention. Dibley accidentally launches into his Macbeth spot remover spiel, until Carol slaps him in the leg to point it out. The cannon is lowered behind the jeep, and the guys connect it to the hitch. Dibley and Carol are pretending to promote a local strip club, and Carol is instructed to begin her dancing, but the cloak won't unbutton, and when she finally gets it open, she loses her balance and falls in the water. But she's wearing a swimsuit. She's not totally nude. Yeah, yeah. Later, they celebrate successfully stealing the cannon, and they drop Carol off at the houseboat. She says she just needs to go inside and scream for a while, and she does just that. We cut to a highlight tournament where we introduce a major subplot 60 minutes into this 90-minute movie. I think the only reason this is a highlight tournament is because the fledgling sport was desperate for publicity and probably paid a pretty penny to the budget to be included. Three gangsters are talking about an armored truck they plan on robbing soon. The head mafioso guy is played by Alex Rocco, and apparently he hasn't considered the need for a diversion while they rob the truck until his henchmen here mention it. Just then, Dibley and the boys stroll past their table. So there's so much that goes on in this highlight scene yeah. that I, I kept trying to predict what was going to be happening. First, I thought, oh, it's like three versions of them. Like they're going to disguise themselves to look like these three guys and oh, then okay. use these three guys. As a, because like they're, they, cause they also have a heavy set guy. So it's like, right. oh, okay. So they're going to dress up like these guys and then make their escape and then like stir crazy. These people are going to get in trouble. Exactly. Yeah. Conveniently for Rocco, Dibley starts talking about their plan weirdly loudly and suggests that they hijack the inter-island ferry to transport the cannon near the mayor's residence. Walter read in the paper that the mayor is hosting a luncheon tomorrow and the money is as good as theirs. As they leave together, Charlie points out that he forgot his shoes again. This doesn't seem like a memory thing. Why did you take your shoes off at a highlight game? I feel like I ask my children this every day. That's true. <laughs> when you when you're at the when at the every time we're at highlight, they why take does it always off. happen here? Oh. <laughs> like that, I, I literally have driven like two locations where the children have just not been wearing shoes. We've gotten the whole way to the elementary school, and then I was like, Jack, wear your shoes. You literally walked barefoot from the house to the car, and you didn't <laughs> think about it. I also don't get why they had to come here. Yeah. Because they didn't order food. They didn't do anything. They Did they came. buy tickets to this game and then talk for five seconds next to it and then leave? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But as Dibley goes back to collect his shoes, he's under his table when he overhears the gangsters planning to use his plot as a distraction for their plot, which is to rob an armored truck. So once again, I was guessing a couple of things that were going to happen here. He's not going to remember. 
Right. He's not going to remember what he overheard. But to cover up for that, they show him writing down what they said immediately. But then I thought, oh, this is where they're going to get the money in the end of this movie. If nothing's going to work and they're going to win money on this ticket that he found on the ground because they established that there's some kind of betting going on because the guy walks out and tears up a whole bunch of tickets and lets him. Right. Yeah. So there's some kind of bets or wagers that are being placed on this game. Yeah. So I thought, oh, he's got a winning ticket and doesn't know it because he's writing a note down on it. And this is where the end plot is going to actually come in. You thought way too far ahead. Yeah. That's actually a better ending. <laughs> <laughs> That they go through all this work and they finally just come into money and it didn't. It was worth. It would. I mean, they already did because they already were just handed a jeep to replace the car that they broke. Yeah, Yeah, but they were intending to return it because that was stealing. So so is picking up a ticket from the (laughs) floor. No, it's stealing. Instead of stealing, they're performing armed robbery. Yeah. (laughs) Are they going to return the cannon? Yeah. I think they are. It's perfect. When they hit the mirror at that luncheon. Every cop in town will be up at his place, what, around 2, 2.30. That truck reaches 8th Street in the June at 2.45, which would give us a nice clear field. Huh? We wanted a diversion. Could be we got ourselves a beauty. Dibley scribbles down the details of the rival plan. Carol wants them to go to the police and turn in the gangsters, but Dibley's plan is to pull off their plan first and then catch the other criminals on their own. They went back to Randall Kendall and got an actual rocket... To put in the cannon that they stole. That's that's a new development. They've decided yeah. we're going to use real armaments. Carol tries to pull the plug on the whole plan in accordance with their agreement, but Dibley simply ignores her. Later, the guys are all decked out in Coast Guard costumes dragging the cannon when they pass a speed trap. Dibley thought to hang a sign from the cannon barrel that reads, Guns of Navarone, now showing, Rialto Theater, and the cops think it's a promotional campaign. That's actually pretty clever. Yeah. Hey, that was a good movie. But also, would you think anything of it if you saw one of those things rolling down the street? No. 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 Absolutely not. <laughs> this without, is America. With or without the sign? Of course yeah. not. Yeah. Well, we also are relatively close to a military base. That's so true, yeah. I see, I see big military vehicles drive by all the time. The inter-island ferry was not a real thing in Miami, and a ferry was rented for the production, but when people saw the prop signs and boat used during filming, it was mistakenly reported as an upcoming service to the Miami area. Aww. In the novel, it's just the Staten Island Ferry, and the mayor's home is obviously Gracie Mansion. Dibley warns Swoboda that maybe his mother should be left out of this operation because it's no place for a woman, but he points out that Kitty will probably be here. The ferry arrives, and Walter waves away all other drivers so the jeep and cannon can be alone on the ferry. Posing as the Coast Guard, they commandeer the ferry, telling the captain that the boat is being quarantined for yellow fever. He also mentions that the mayor wanted to see the ferry personally from his home, so they ship off to the mayor's house. Now, if they're saying that yellow fever is being quarantined on this boat, doesn't that mean that just this captain has yellow fever? I thought they were in quarantine for the island that this ferry was supposed to go to. Oh, they were They weren't letting people go yeah. to the island. That makes yeah. more sense. I was like, wouldn't this guy remember if he'd been tested for yellow fever <laughs> recently? As soon as we get opposite the residence, would you mind uh, swinging the boat around so the mayor can see it's empty? Anything for the mayor. At the mayor's luncheon, he entertains a guest from the Bronx who claims to have been mugged three times since arriving in town. An aide shows the mayor the cannon pointed at his home, and all they can read from here is the word Rialto and assume that it's the Cuban Navy for some reason. The mayor accepts a call and makes some surprising concessions right away. This is the mayor speaking. We won't pay a penny more than half a million. Turns out they're only looking for $742.43, which is exactly enough to break even for everything they've spent, but not enough to even replace the broken car. That just covers what they initially paid for it, plus the expenses renting a boat and costumes. Yeah. The mayor thinks $742 is easy enough to scrape together out of pocket, just pooling the pocket change of his staff. He's looking for good PR by paying these men himself to replace their broken car. For some reason, Dibley instructs him to leave the money somewhere for Carol to collect it anonymously, even though it seems like the mayor wants to make this exchange in a press conference. Like, yeah. it, I thought he made it very clear this would be a public transaction. Unfortunately, the mayor isn't carrying any cash, but once everyone else is put in, they're still 10 bucks short. A Miami cop offers a gun, suggesting it's worth at least 80, and the mayor takes it, but decides to ask a guest for the last 10. Of course, he approaches the man who's already been mugged thrice, who mistakes the mayor carrying a gun for a fourth mugging, and hands over the cash. Take it all. Oh, no, no, no. Just the, uh, the 10. You're very kind. 
Even the mayor. I really kind of hope that all the rest of the muggings were also misunderstandings. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All people being held hostage to replace cars for carpoolers. Now that the gang have the money basically in hand, it's time to thwart the other robbery. It sounds like the gangsters chose this intersection to rob the truck because a nearby construction yard has the equipment they'll need to open the truck by force. We cut back to the mayor delivering the cash at the Dinner Key Ferry Terminal to Carol dressed as a nun on roller skates. When the ferry pulls in, they drive off the boat and snatch the cash out of her hands on their way to stop the mafiosos, but leave her behind. What's their rush? We had a deal. They're on their way to a robbery. How many do they do a day? No, 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 they're going to try and stop one. I don't know if they can handle it. Well, in that case, we better help them out. Come on! The mayor offers her a ride to the second planned robbery. Technically, this other robbery should already be failing since the mayor never called the police for the first one and there is no distraction from the mafia plot. They set up a detour for the armored truck and send it down a side road and then drive out in front of it to block it on the road. The man operating a wrecking ball is working with Alex Rocco and drops the ball through the top of the truck, blasting open all the doors and nearly crushing the guard inside the vehicle. I mean, I do like this idea of how to get into an armored car. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. That would work for sure. I believe it. The henchmen quickly have the guards at gunpoint when Dibley, Charlie, and Walter come around a corner, still towing the cannon. The bad guys steal the armored truck and drive it down the street, but are pursued by police, the mayor with a roller skating nun, and the jeep pulling a cannon. One of the cops considers calling for backup, but the driver wants to handle it alone. Dibley plans to get in front of the armored car, so their cannon is pointed right at it. When they pull through a toll booth, The henchman drops a bag of stolen coins, and it pays for all the vehicles chasing him. They try to cross a bridge, but it's raising to allow boats passage, and they get stuck at a light. Alex Rocco suggests there is no problem. Don't worry! We're in an armored truck that can't touch us! Forgetting, apparently, that they just demolished this truck with a wrecking ball, and the top is actually wide open. Some of the windows are still rolled down, and the back window is completely shattered out. On top of that, they don't tell the guy in the back with the money that he's not supposed to open the doors, and he nearly lets the cops in by swinging them wide open. Also, I feel like the tires are still mostly vulnerable yeah that's it i the tires are so screwed up on the back of this car too like they're they're wobbling and i honestly don't know how they did this i think the that the tires that are wobbling like that are fake like because they're double wide tires and only one of each tire set is wobbling. i still think it's a pretty impressive effect to have like tires visibly wobbling on the outside of this car and still have it be functional yeah it did look good the bridge lowers and the armored truck drives off the henchman driving the truck takes it onto the train tracks to avoid everybody but the cops follow don't drive on the railroad track phil that's one i happen to agree with (laughs) i was thinking about this the whole time (laughs) i wanted to text you too early for flapjacks Dibley finally gets the cannon on the tracks in front of the armored truck and then forgets where he is. What's also really impressive is that uh, like the cop car is managing to ride the rails perfectly yeah. on the tires. I, I saw like, that. Damn, that's some, that's some control. Yeah. Walter gets a shell into the cannon and fires it into the front of the armored truck. Or actually, I think, in the ground right in yeah. front of the armored truck. Okay, you guys. This one's the Spogoda's mother. Walter fires the round into the tracks and the truck falls into the hole they blasted. The cops rush in to arrest the mafiosos. Carol rushes up to kiss Dibley and the mayor congratulates them for saving the day. He tells them they can keep the money that he paid them earlier today. But they just blew up a set of train tracks. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I mean, is someone going to, to let the let the tran- the MTA know or something like yeah, that? Yeah, that would be important. Because, uh, like, I... I, I'm surprised that I'm these these tracks must be abandoned. Yeah. Just as far as the plot purposes, it's just like I was like, oh my god. Or maybe they're not real. They're just built for the movie. That they could just be. they just laid out a hundred feet of track. I don't believe that they would do that. No not way. For this movie. Later, we see they've bought a replacement car with it, and Dibley nearly drives it into another huge pothole. But after he successfully avoids it, he accidentally backs into the same hole, destroying the new car. They all get out and walk and we cut to them wearing military uniforms, approaching a warship, and turning to camera for a freeze frame as credits roll. So I guess the implication is that they're going to steal a warship and ask for the money to get a yeah, new car. another new car. Ugh. So that was Nobody's Perfect. It wasn't that bad, guys. I, the plot is nonsense. It is, I, I think but- 
it's it's not it's not nonsense like Harry's war nonsense. It's really I think not. it's a lot like that. No, it's not. It's not like that in that these guys aren't trying to murder innocent people the whole time. But like at least the base premise is like, yeah, I want to pay for like I want to pay for the car that the city owes me money for. Like at least that's yeah. sound. No, I get that. That that part of it doesn't break the universe. I I think it's quirky and it's not horrible. It's not horrible. It is quirky. And I, I I do like that the mayor is, for the most part, playing along with it. That he's, like, okay with their plan. He understands what they're going through. And, and he kind of wants to help them out, even if it's a self-serving reason. But, yeah, the, the, I feel like the whole thing with the, the extra gangsters didn't need to be a part of it. I yeah. agree. That was unnecessary. But, but we I just don't needed think it, to show that they saved the day and that they're the good guys. I don't think it ruined it. No, it, I guess it didn't ruin it. It just needed to be introduced earlier. That, that would have helped, like, too, I yeah, think. Like, if they'd have been working side by side the whole time mm-hmm. and we'd seen the, their, their plots unfolding in parallel. Or, or, yeah, or maybe uh, with the recent string of bank robberies, like, these guys are, you know, more of a threat. Right. Like, it's like, oh, my God, it must be those bank robbers that have been hitting everything. Yeah. You know? Uh, I don't know. Anything, anything would have helped for me because... I, I don't know. It was just following them around. I, I did. I did like it. Like Jesse said, I, I liked that they kept getting into these situations where things just worked out for them. Yeah. Like the 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 thing that got me the most, the only time I think I really like kind of even chuckled was the the car exchange at the dealership. Yeah. With the I'll give you fifteen hundred of like, and then he talks them down from sixteen to fifteen. He goes, here you go. But again, I, actually, I actually think that Gabe Kaplan like. I know that he obviously worked for a really long time on Welcome Back, Cotter, but yeah. I feel like he should have had more movies because there's there's something to him that's that's very genuinely funny. Yeah, and I I think he has a really incredible sense of comedic timing. Yeah, he's he's a strange looking guy though. I feel like uh, I'd only ever seen him on Nick at Night reruns of Welcome Back, Cotter, and I I never really got a good look at his face. I guess before seeing it in like an, a Blu-ray scan of this movie, <laughs> and he just kind of looks like. Billy Crystal wearing a, a bad Burt Reynolds costume. I mean, he he also sounds and has similar mannerisms to Billy Crystal. He does. Like, yeah, I, they have the the exact same voice for yeah, sure. Yeah, but he just um he, and maybe it's a part of the characterization that he's like forgetful and everything. But he pauses and he just thinks for a while, and then he'll he'll just like spout off a couple words really lazily, and just the timing is really great. Yeah, the way yeah. he says stuff. Um, I wish he was in more stuff. I I don't love klein's work as much here um and i'm also not as familiar with his career but alex karras i've seen in a bunch of stuff and i'm glad that he got as much to do here i think he was great too but but robert klein of the three of them i feel like could have been recast probably thumbs up or thumbs down jess you know i'm gonna give it a thumbs up that's a thumbs down for me i think it's it's also a thumbs down for me (laughs) but there was enjoyable stuff here and i do like gabe kaplan uh do we know where this is going letterboxd Jess? Uh, I have it at 62 out of 109. Okay. It's very middle of the road for yeah. me. It is below Death Hunt and above Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. All right. Richard? Uh, I have it at 58. <laughs> you gave it a thumbs down and hated it, and you blinked it higher than I did. <laughs> Richard hates everything, apparently. <laughs> oh, just most things uh everything under eight is a will never watch again <laughs> yeah pretty much so at, at 58 it puts it above kill and kill again but below condor man um i know i said i didn't like it but it's in 12th for me <laughs> no no it's not uh <laughs> i have it in 88th out of 109 which puts it just under force five and just above condor man hey hey we, we both like Condor Man slightly better than this movie. No, less. <laughs> oh, slightly, oh, less. Okay. <laughs> I liked it slightly better. Our director here was Peter Boners as Randall Kendall, the crane operator. He's a longtime TV director. He started on shows like Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and carrying through to shows like Alf, Wings, News Radio, Murphy Brown, Friends, Home Improvement, Just Shoot Me, Joey, and most recently Shit My Dad Says with William Shatner. This was his feature film debut. He also directed Police Academy 6, 
As an actor, we've seen him so far in Catch-22 as McWatt and Leonard, the psychiatrist in Serial. His next feature film acting credit isn't until he plays the producer of Taxi in Milos Forman's Man on the Moon. Writer, novelist Tony Kenrick also wrote the novel Faraday's Flowers, which was adapted into the 1986 film Shanghai Surprise, starring the married-at-the-time power couple Sean Penn and Madonna. The music here was from David McHugh. He followed this scoring Moscow on the Hudson, Mystic Pizza, The Dream Team, which is basically just this again, but slightly better, and Mannequin on the Move. Cinematographer James Pergola, he was a DP on Hardly Working and Island Claws so far for the podcast. He's back to light Smokey and the Bandit 3, Police Academy 5, all of Thunder in Paradise movies and series, and about half of Baywatch Nights, like exactly half, 22 of the 44 episodes. Oh, Baywatch Nights. Curious if Pergola was any relation to the inventor of the pergola, a type of gazebo, I learned that pergola as a <laughs> word actually dates back to the 1600s, so James is of no direct relation. Yeah, you thought pergola was named after a person? It it could have been. We don't know. Like those famous columns named after column. What? <laughs> Jeff Column? What, what no. are you talking about? You're saying literally nothing <laughs> is named after anyone? No. I'm is just that saying, your I'm saying an architectural features are generally not named after a person. Oh, so the whole gazebo family just doesn't exist? <laughs> yes, exactly. Are all those buttresses? <laughs> Kyle Buttress. Though his father, James V. Pergola, was a DP in the 20s, and some of his more famous footage includes newsreel footage from the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, FDR's election campaigns, and the first sound interview with J.D. Rockefeller. Sadly, Pergola's father was killed in a plane crash on a transcontinental flight while working on a Pathé newsreel, ironically titled, The Safety of Transcontinental Flying. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. Editor Neil Travis, before this he cut Jaws 2 and Hot Stuff. We've mentioned his credits in Die Laughing and The Idol Maker, and he's back for Cujo, Philadelphia Experiment, Dances with Wolves, for which he won an Oscar, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, Outbreak, Stepmom, and Terminator 3, among others. Gabe Kaplan played Dibley. This is one of very few film roles for Kaplan. Gabe Kaplan is a comedian best known for his work as Gabe Cotter on Welcome Back, Cotter, or possibly now for his poker playing and commentating. He also appeared on a short-lived sitcom called Lewis and Clark, but not much else. And he recently showed up as Abe Ziegler on BoJack Horseman. Alex Karras was Swoboda. I always go to Mongo first from Blazing yeah. Saddles. But he's also Sheriff Wallace in Porky's and George Papadopoulos on Webster. And we saw him last as Tiny Baker in When Time Ran Out. He also played 12 years with the Detroit Lions. Robert Klein played Walter. Before this, he was in Owl and the Pussycat and Hooper. We'll hear him next as the voice of the butterfly in The Last Unicorn. He was a writer for and occasional host of Saturday Night Live. He plays the mayor in Sharknado 2 and 3 and Grace's father on Will and Grace. Susan Clark played Carol. She's Cherry Forever in Porky's. Helen Petroni in Airport 75 and Julie Roth in Coogan's Bluff. This was one of many roles alongside actor Alex Karras after starring as husband and wife in the 1975 TV movie Babe. Five years later, in 1980, they were married in real life, and another three years later, they would play husband and wife for the full run of Webster as George and Catherine Papadopoulos. So they were actually married. Yeah. Paul Stewart played Dr. Siegel. He was Raymond in Citizen Kane. He was Harry Sandler in SOB earlier this season, but most importantly, he was Dr. Carl Steubens in the MacGyver pilot of Steubens and Marlowe fame. Yeah. Alex Rocco played the boss. We saw him not... not Springsteen. He plays the boss of the mafia team. <laughs> we saw him last season as one of the villains of Herbie Goes Bananas and as Jake in The Stuntman. He's likely best known as Mo Green in The Godfather. And spoiler alert, he gets shot through the eye while getting a back massage. Arthur Rosenberg played the mayor. He was a hospital administrator in Where the Buffalo Roam and George Swanson in Cutter's Way. James Cromwell played Dr. Carson. Before this, he was Marcel in Murder by Death. Later, he's the fathers of nerds as Mr. Mueller in Joe Dante's The Explorers, and Mr. Skullnick in Revenge of the Nerds 2 through 4. He's Charles Keating in The People vs. Larry Flint, and Zephram Cochran in Star Trek First Contact. He's also enormous. Like, when he walks in, compared to Paul Stewart, he, he's like easily twice the size of his yeah, man. Yeah, he's crazy tall. He was Gwen Stacy's dad in Spider-Man 3. He's George H.W. Bush in W., 
and he's currently Ewan Roy, brother of Brian Cox's Logan Roy on HBO's Succession, but he's probably best known as Farmer Hoggett in Babe and Babe 2. There you go. <laughs> That'll do, pig. That'll do. For some reason, my first thought is always of President Newman from The West Wing. He was a Carter-esque former president in an episode where all the living presidents show up for a meet-and-greet with President Bartlett. John DeSanti played Knuckles. He was a gay thief in Hot Stuff. He was J.J. Grossout Gumbrowski in King Frat. He was a newsman in Hardly Working. Stanley Herbert, the killer in Eyes of a Stranger. And he's back this season as Longshoreman in Absence of Malice. He's also Gus in Batteries Not Included and Detective James Wickman in The Star Chamber. Will Knickerbocker played the mechanic. He was Garland in Island Claws. Harold Bergman played Captain. He was Reverend in Cocoon. Dr. Irwin in Cocoon 2 and Bellman in The Final Countdown. Raymond Forshin played the army officer. That's the one who gets a badge for giving him directions on his way into the building. Yeah. He plays Jean in Island Claws. He was a man in The Tent Show in Funhouse. He's a policeman in Revenge of the Nerds 2 and a cop in Mac and Me, but I recognize him most as Detective Banks from Flight of the Navigator. Yeah, I, it's like as soon as he started talking, it's like, I, I know that freaking voice. And yeah. I can't, when I, and I had to look it up because I didn't, I didn't recognize him right away. It's like, oh, yeah, he's the detective who finds him. When we went to, uh, where was that Where was that screening? Uh, of, at the Egyptian? Yeah, I think it was at the Egyptian. And, and he, he came out for the Flight of the Navigator screening where they had, like, the the main character kid was yeah, there, yeah, too. Yeah. And, and uh, was Randall Kleiser there? I feel like the director was there, too. I don't remember. Um, but, yeah, he, he remembered a bunch of working on this movie. I was, I was impressed with uh, how much information he brought. Luke Halpin played a deckhand. He's Ken Wilson in Mr. No Legs and a tape editor in Eyes of a Stranger. George Gill played a gang member. He was Lou Pine in Cocoon. Uh. Is there a wolf character in that movie? <laughs> <laughs> Lee Krug played the mayor's aide. He was Ronnie the lifeguard in Piranha 2. Jeff Gillen played a window washer. He was Santa Claus in A Christmas Story. And he's also Jeff in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Bobby Gale played a cabbie. He's Scardella and Superfuzz later this season. Dan Fitzgerald played Second Salesman. He was a Navy doctor in Final Countdown, Sheriff in Island Claws, and a bartender in Eyes of a Stranger. These are all the, the Miami productions. Yeah. Eyes of a Stranger, Island Claws, Final Countdown. Is, is Superfuzz this season? Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. I can't wait to watch Superfuzz. Commissioner Murdoch in Police Academy 5 was also Dan Fitzgerald. William Fuller played a cop. He's Eustace the Clan Leader in Porky's 2 and Gus in Porky's 3. Joe Petrullo played a cop. He's a pallbearer in The Godfather. Carrie Hoffman played Hardhat, probably somebody loading up that ship. He's a waiter in Hardly Working. Actually, sorry, Carrie Hoffman played Hardhat. That's the guy who drops the wrecking ball through the truck Yeah. because he's the waiter who told Jerry Lewis that their menus were out of season. Do you remember that? I blanked out that entire movie. Of course you did. It was the only it was the only thing that I laughed at in that movie. Yeah. Ken Rogers played Corporal. He was a newsman and running scared last season, and Ken and Island Claws. Running Scared is another Miami production. Tom Tully played Man Protester. He was a pilot and running scared last season. Frank Schuler played Man with Trey. We've seen him so far as a cook in Caddyshack and Coy in Island Claws. Bill Hindman played a car salesman. He was Coach Goodenough in Porky's 1, 2, and 3, and he's back later this year as a priest in Absence of Malice. A lot of Porky's uh, yeah. connections. Amusingly, Mrs. Swoboda's name appears in the final credits, but without an actor's name beside it. I like that they included her, though. They should have put it as herself. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But nobody's perfect. Wah, wah, wah. Nobody's perfect. I think that's everything for Nobody's Perfect. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing An American Werewolf in London which IMDb describes like so. Two American college students on a walking tour of Britain are attacked by a werewolf that none of the locals will admit exists. We leave you now with a trailer for an American werewolf in London. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? 
could be a lot of things. Yeah? A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. I'm sorry I'm upsetting you, David, but you don't understand what's going on. I understand, all right. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. David, stop! I'm going to the police. Jack was right. Jack is dead! Yeah, Jack is dead, and six people are dead. There's going to be a full moon tonight. I'm going to the cops. Oh, be serious, would you? You can't let them go. Should the world know our business? It's murder, then. Then murder it is. Excuse me. I'm a werewolf. A werewolf? A naked American man stole my balloons. What? Let me through! Let me through! 